0: You know, it would be really advantageous to be able to put a little tiny house in my backyard for my mother in law, or for when you your know, wife if, kicks you out of you out the house. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. yeah. happens yeah. all the time. Sure. So sorry, so. Sorry,
1: Jeff. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting the nail right on the head there.
2: PowerPoints, power lunches, conference calls, reply to all, endless meetings, constant check ins, and so much wasted time. Are you sick of the BS? So are we. It's time to take our time back. Rework the way we work and make every call a call to action. This is a podcast for people who want to stop talking and really start connecting. This is After 12. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to After 12. 12 for 12's original podcast series that explores cool companies, brands, messages, and makers, and what compels us to take notice and become fans. As always, I'm joined by my creative co-host and life partner, Josh Rush. We've got a great show for you today. Our guest today is a professional skier, contractor, and co-host of FYI Network's Tiny House Nation. When he and co-host John Weisbarth are traveling the country, designing and building tiny homes, Zach is a professional speaker, sharing his love for tiny dwellings and tiny home living. In addition, he owns and operates his own company called Zach Rabbit Tools and Accessories. Internet, please join me in welcoming Zach Giffen to After 12. Zach, welcome. Hey, hey, guys.
1: (laughs) Happy to be here with
2: you. Happy to have you here, man. Um, It's great to have you on the show. It sounds like you've been keeping really busy. How how have you guys been doing in the, uh, the quarantine zone?
1: Uh, you know, for me, it's it's actually been something that I've been kind of really enjoying just because um, I've been looking forward to a time in my life where I get to stay in one place for a bit. <laughs> I've been kind of even before the tiny house television show, being a skier, I was constantly on the road traveling more internationally, um, you know, and I was kind of feeling like I, I could use some routine in my life even then. And then I got hired on the show and just six years later, it's like no hope. So. This has been um it's, it's of course it's a challenge but it's also a blessing. Well
0: it's, it it's, must be nice to get some time to hang out
1: in that mansion that you're living in. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm going to be honest like I I get interviewed quite a bit and very rarely do people kind of ask for me like, Hey, what's your bio? You know, they just grab it off the internet and like I've been doing this a long time. So I'm pretty sure a lot of the stuff that people get is legitimately like the very first bio that was ever written for me and put online, which was like 2014. And you know, a lot has happened since then, but um, yeah, it's always fun to kind of hear where people think I am. I, I actually do live in a very small space, but um, I got married about two years ago, and in the fall we moved to Glacier. Um, and, I, and I, I'm renting a like a one bedroom apartment in a little condo up there, and that's where we've been living for the last you know year and a half. Um, but it's it's for a whole lot of different reasons, and and one of the big ones is that you know it's not exactly legal to live in a tiny house anywhere, right? Especially yeah. when you're on wheels. So you have to take that into consideration. And I'm somebody who um, I believe that every movement needs kind of all types of activists. And for a long time, I was kind of a renegade activist, right? So I was living a little bit I call under the radar. <laughs> Other people might call it illegally, but um, (laughs) my my dad calls it "don't be a ski ski
2: bum, bum, son." Get a job. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny though. I mean, Josh and I have spent so much time when we're not podcasting philosophically discussing, you know, quarantine and assessing how we live and how to live simpler. And by reducing kind of the daily complexity, we increase the quality of life. I mean, was this pursuit of simple living? A big part of what attracted you to build your first tiny home
1: um well i mean adam you know a bit about the ski culture for sure um and and some people kind of hear that i come from skiing background and they're like well that's so weird how did you make that that jump and actually if you know about the culture um it's really not that much of a stretch because the whole idea of minimalism this idea that we're kind of prioritizing the experiences in our life over the material possessions um, is nothing new within that culture. Not not just skiing, but kind of all outdoor sports, rock climbing, surfing, you all kind of have this mentality of, like, um, the, the individual that kind of sacrifices some of those, you know, society's comforts to pursue the sport on a high level is almost like a badge of honor yeah. within that culture. So
2: uh,
0: how, how, does that, though, how does that – now, thinking about just spending the last three months indoors – You you know, how's the culture faring?
1: (laughs) You know, I would just kind of say that that I have heard a lot of people saying like, I wonder what the tiny house people think about their decision now, you know, (laughs) guarantee. Yeah. You know, my house, what worked for me was that my whole life was outdoors.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: and it was such a small space, but it was like, it was that, that reassurance I needed in my life to be able to be brave enough to take risks because I always had a place to come back to. But it only really worked because I wasn't spending eight hours a day there. Um, And and I guess that being said, I I just kind of feel like, yeah, it is a challenge to live in a tiny house if you have to stay indoors all the time. Absolutely. Um, However, I think that that discounts um, a lot of the contentment people have from having a space that they feel secure in where the the payments aren't such a stress on their life because right right now we're in a living in a situation where so many people are in their homes for the first time because they're always outside working to pay for these large homes now they're finally getting to enjoy it but the bills are stacking up yeah yeah for a lot of people you know uh, their their economic reality is no longer as certain as it was. And even though they got plenty of space to live in, they're looking at that space as like, oh, my goodness, how am it's I going to pay? crippling?
0: It's a crushing weight. Well, not only that but to, we, hold, to hold up. Yeah,
2: we don't celebrate minimalism in the United States. We celebrate excess. And I think, you know, COVID-19 or just the result of having, you know, a pandemic that was really only precedented once in 1918 is now. Uh, affecting us in the way we look at kind of, well, I mean, what, what is financial freedom? What is, you know, environmental footprinting mean? What does our carbon footprint mean? And then what is our kind of our, our spiritual or our, our human connection with, with nature? And I've seen a lot of people just say, screw it. I want to change, you know, from this experience, I mean, is it now for you kind of like a vindication or justification of like what you and John have been doing <laughs> the last six years?
1: I I would, I would say that it's, it's happening really very fast right now, but it's been gradually happening more and more, uh, over the last two decades And 2008 was this big moment where it kind of was a reality check for a lot of people. A lot of people lost everything they had and, and got kind of disillusioned with the path that they had been told where if you just, you know, if you do everything right and you play the game, like it's, it's going to work out. Um, and so now I think that, yeah, we're in a, we're in a new situation, uh, where it's starting to kind of make people kind of question, okay, like how sustainable was that path that I was on? Um, and, and
0: also how, how, grat- how gratifying was it really? Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a lot of time spent, you know, Adam and I talk about this where, where like, you know, I, I want to say, you know, everybody's, well, like, oh, you, you really just take this time and you know, just appreciate the time you have with your family. And and to your point, Zach, it's like, well, yeah, but I have these bills to pay. Like, you know, I've I've lost my job. My business is ruined. And you know i am stressed out still it's like i went from being stressed to like more stress there's no and happiness now i'm an alcoholic
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i you know i think it really comes down to like balance you know yeah. when we're when we're talking about what the goal of minimalism is nobody's trying to say hey it's just better to be naked and like you know eating with your fingernails <laughs> you know this is not it's it's about hey Finding that balance in your life and it's different for everybody, yeah. but there is a moment where like the tools that we need for happiness are sufficient and we, we collect stuff beyond that that ends up really being something that kind of holds us back, whether it's just, it's in our life and we don't know what to do, or if it's an expense that we think that we have to cover that we really don't, that requires us to work for it. Um, but it's, it's not about just pulling all stuff back. It's about like reflecting on what that balance is.
2: Is it is it strange to you that the inflection point for this change in in addressing the human condition is a national or global pandemic? It's like, you know, it takes that to, you know, start a a movement.
1: Not at all. It's it's not (laughs) at all surprising that it takes like a real serious challenge for people to start um, looking at actually changing because change is scared when people get complacent and happy and like any sort of change is a little bit frightening. Um, so it really usually does take a, like an unavoidable challenge. And I would say climate change was already hitting us for a long time, two decades. We've been aware about this. Yeah. Um, so it's already been there. Then the, the financial crisis in 2008 kind of started making people question is that is the structure that the way that we finance housing, the way that we invest in housing. Um, is this something that's like serving us? And is it a sustainable process? Um, because so really so, well, in my belief, it's, it was that investment mentality that, um, that drive to use our homes to build wealth yeah, and how the kind of the sit, it, it got set up where there was just so much incentive for a homeowner to basically use every spare bit of cash available to them to pour it into their home, to expand the size of their home. Because it was all looked at as just a real, just a great investment. And because of the rate of appreciation that our housing was in and has been, that has really been facilitated by like interest rates and and lending practices, Um, it really was a great investment. So you can't blame anybody for pouring their life savings back into their homes. Only problem is it's left us with a country where our housing stock has gotten bigger and bigger. We have more and more of our population living as single individuals, just in large homes that it's so obvious they don't need. And too much of our population is looking at their housing as their retirement plan.
2: Right. They have all of their money in their home. And, and I'd imagine that the, the generations that are coming up now, you know, millennials and Gen Z's won't have the financial ability to, to take that surplus of homes that are owned by, you know, baby boomers now like my parents and 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 buy those homes at the price they want to sell those homes for with the appreciation on those homes.
1: Uh that's exactly right. There's actually a really interesting study that was put out um and this was by Fannie Mae, right? So it's not a conspiracy website or anything. <laughs> the report by Fannie Mae in and it was the project with a professor at USC and it's called the coming exodus of older homeowners. And if anybody's interested in this subject, I'd totally recommend looking it up. Um, And it says exactly what you just said. It said, okay, we have the baby boomers in our, our baby boomers own two-fifths of the housing in our country. And then people older than that demographic own another one-fifth. So 60% of the housing in our country is owned by people 55 and older. And they are definitely the larger, more expensive homes. And just the the net worth of the homes only owned by baby boomers is like thirteen and a half trillion dollars. Wow. And what this what this report was really kind of doing was looking at the attrition rates. Um, attrition being like uh, you know somebody having to sell their home um, by something that is not within their control. Whether that's like a change, drastic change in finances, it's a health emergency, it's death. All of those things are counted in attrition. And as you can understand, the rate of attrition when you're in your 60s, 70s, and 80s is different. Right. And that attrition rate has stayed steady for for decades and decades. And it's what um, insurance companies use to kind of make their calculations on how much they need to charge. So basically, if you take that that historic attrition rate and you apply it to this large population of homeowners – you basically have an unavoidable flood of homes being put on the market between now and 2026. And then again, it it increases again after that. so, anyways, I was just talking a lot, but it's basically reinforcing what you're saying, which is the younger generations mathematically do not have the asset holdings required to right, absorb right. that wealth. Well, just
0: in general, if you look at you know the, the increase in cost of, of housing as it relates to cost of living over the last thirty years, right? I mean, you see median income, right, has stayed barely steady, right? Sixty thousand dollars a year, or something like this for the last thirty years. And meanwhile, you watch home prices rise against it to you know, three four hundred thousand yeah. dollars is sort of your medium home value now, and it's like how. And really, it's just because of the financial tools that are available to us that weren't available then, which is more or less uh, yes. You know, and funny now right. I
2: mean, so- on top of that, millennials and Gen Zs are are spending all their money on marijuana stocks. So it's really <laughs> <a> different- <laughs> no, but I mean, there is good news. There's good news because according to according to the Boston Globe, RV sales. Uh, and tiny houses are skyrocketing, skyrocketing during the pandemic. Likewise, according to Curbed Atlanta, coronavirus is on pace for a 150% increase in accessory dwelling unit sales this year. Are you seeing the same trend? Are you and John talking about this trend? I, I know that you're, you're the, uh, the vice president of, uh, Thea, the tiny house industry association. Are, are you guys talking about it in, in the association?
1: Oh, 100 percent. You know, that is our entire goal as an association is try to um, really bring some some unity to the industry and then really push for uh, unified building standards so that we can get more municipalities to open up to tiny homes. Because right what you just said is a really interesting thing, because you're saying tiny homes and RVs are skyrocketing. Well, most tiny homes, when they're built by. A, a tiny home builder, it's actually built as an RV, right? right? Yeah. So in the code structure of the recreational vehicles, it says not intended for full-time use. Yeah. So right there in the code structure, the RV industry does not want their products to be lived in full-time. This is supposed to be a recreational vehicle. It's supposed to be for, you know, part-time vacations and this and that. And then they make park models which are basically supposed to be second homes, but still they're not really intended for full-time use. There's no reason that they can't, but it's in the code structure. And so it makes it very difficult for cities to say, sure, go ahead and use a tiny home that's built as an RV as your house. Does that so, make sense?
2: And that's, ha- that's happening right now in California. Let's talk, Let's talk about. That yeah, ass. yeah.
1: So there are a few cities that actually have gone through with really important progressive legislation, basically enabling tiny homes uh, to be used in backyards as an ADU. So you mentioned accessory dwelling units. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, and the, the units the, is is basically a dation. Okay.
0: Well, I mean, if you think about what you just said too, with regards to the Fannie Mae study, if you've got baby boomer baby boomers and older over the next you know, 10 to 15 years are going to be flooded, and they're going to be getting out of their homes and moving into some other form of scaled back and/or assisted living. Uh, when you pair that reality with the new economic sort of realities that COVID is creating for for much of the population, um, you know, it seems to me like you know it would be really advantageous to be able to put a little tiny house in my backyard for my mother-in-law who, or for when you your know, wife f- kicks, kicks you out, out of the house. It happens <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, all the time. So so sorry, sorry,
1: yeah. I mean, you're hitting the nail right on the head there. Uh, and I say we also have another factor here, which is that people already wanted to age in place. That's a really yeah. big desire. Yeah. Right. Now, after COVID, people <laughs> <you told laughs> go to a nursing home or assisted <laughs> living. Room. Are you kidding? Me? Nursing uh, home sales are down. <laughs> We're not going to a home, Suze. Yeah. So that, that <laughs> desire. That desire to create pathways for older homeowners to stay in their home and age in place is going yeah. to be really, really strong, as if it wasn't already really strong. Yeah. Um, and there's a really interesting thing about ADUs because an ADU is a terrific way for somebody to do that. You build a little cottage in your backyard, you can move into it, you stay in the community, you can rent out your home right. to somebody who needs the space. Um it also creates this amazing potential for a dynamic between an older and younger generation to yes. kind of, you know, one person has the property, one person has the body that can do the maintenance. It's a it's a symbi- symbiotic relationship that's worked for millennial and human, human history.
2: Well, there's also wisdom exchange and experience exchange and, and grandparents right. having direct access to their grandkids. And, you know, I, I think the way the Japanese, for instance, they revere and they they protect their aging populations. We we in the United States we put them out to pasture. I mean, I think culturally, what's happening and what you're seeing um, it's probably the linchpin of your marketing plan to go to nurse, <laughs> nursing homes and try to attract these guys back to their families. Uh, but yeah, it's it, I think there is a, a major cultural reason that that we're seeing that. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. And I would back you up on saying that I think it's healthy. I think it's really healthy for kids to grow up in a space where there's old people around, where they get to relate to old people. There's not this like barrier from interaction where the only time we see old people is like quarantined into these these spaces. Um, my parents, you know, my grandma had Alzheimer's and I watched my mom and my aunt take care of her for like 11 years. And it was super hard on the family. It was super hard on my parents, but for the the education, the spiritual education of of the kids, like myself, my brothers, to like witness that, I think it's really powerful.
2: So right now in the U.S., we're we're kind of dealing with uh, dual pandemics. Um, you know, one on the sense of COVID nineteen and what's happened with the virus infection, but the other on the sense of like coming to terms with uh, prejudice and racial injustice here in the United States how how can tiny homes and i i mean this in a very serious question like how can yeah, tiny I mean, homes help mitigate the effects of of both
1: well i i really appreciate you asking that question it's it's something that's really kind of fuels the passion that i have for tiny homes really on on next level is that i really believe that it's a way where by empowering um uh lower income human beings in our society to actually have dignified housing, it's kind of like a, you know, we talk about housing as this like way to build wealth, almost like a ladder, like it's a rung on a ladder and you have all these different, you know, kind of rungs on that ladder. And eventually you climb yourself up into a mansion. That's kind of like the American dream, right? But we're, we're climbing on a ladder right now where some of the rungs are missing. Right. So you're, if you are renting an apartment to go from rental to home ownership at this point is there, there's this huge gap and you almost have to be like assisted by people like the friends that I have that are, are buying homes nowadays that are my age, they're basically getting their parents to co-sign on mortgages and that's how they're being able to do it because people in my generation don't have the asset holdings to be able to, um, to qualify for mortgages. So if you come from a a community where nobody, you know, even has the ability to like even co-sign on a loan to give you a chance and trust you, that really becomes a major gap. Um, And furthermore, I believe that it's not just about creating affordable housing. What I really am passionate about is disrupting the process that ends up dividing our communities based on economic lines, if that makes sense. This totally. And and,
0: and what does that and
1: what does what that look people, like?
0: When you, and what does that look like to you? I mean Adam and I talk about this all the time. So I'm just curious. Yeah.
1: Well we talk a lot about like the systemic um systemic in- inequalities and that our system is kind of reinforcing these these laws that hold people back and hold communities back, and I would say that the most obvious example of that kind of laws that we reinforce and um, that hold communities back are our zoning policies, right? Yeah. And, and if you if you go back to when they were implemented, I think I'm I might be kind of breaking up a little bit. Um, but basically, if you go back to the origins of those laws, it's very very easy to trace them that they were implemented on racial, for racial reasons, you know, yes. to hold minorities back. And we still are living with the same things. And it's just very convenient. People have changed the conversation from saying, hey, we're going to not allow people of this skin color into our community. We just say, hey, we're not going to allow people of low economic spectrum into our community. And by doing so, that's exactly what happens. We create just the segregated societies.
2: Well, John Oliver just did a piece this week on that same phenomenon. and it's it's amazing to me when when you have a society that has a, a lack of affordable uh, housing and they are zoned in areas that have a lack of, you know, um, taxable income to be put towards schools or to be put towards infrastructure, you get the situation that we're in now um, and so many of, of the values of, of minimalism or tiny house living is that you're not spending more than a third of your income of what you can earn on your home. And right now, I would, I would say that for a lot of Americans, they're spending half of what they earn on their mortgage payments or their rent every month and yep. that is not sustainable. And if you can't, I mean, it, it, again, and then we've got the healthcare conundrum. And you've got, you know, basic, you know, food and utility servicing. I mean, I, it, you get to a tipping point, which is kind of where we are, uh, especially when for 90 days you are out of work because you're a gig worker and there is a, a virus ripping through the community. Yeah, I, uh, so so t- tell us, you know, in, in, in what you guys are doing at, at Thea and also tell us about what what you're doing at Operation Tiny Home, because this is a direct empowerment program that you guys have.
1: Yeah. OK. I, I just want to comment one before we move on from the, the segregation aspect. I just want to say that, you know, I'm. It's not like I'm advocating, all right, tiny homes is a solution, and all we need to do is have people who are oppressed move into these tiny little homes. And I mean, because that sounds like a really, I mean, that's like an underhanded solution, right? This is not what I'm talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that um, we need more integrated societies, right? We need more actually integrated society so human beings can learn to interact with each other, become friends with each other. We need our children growing up together, learning how to be on soccer teams together and look past the aspect of skin color and just see the human. And I think we know how that happens, um, but it doesn't happen overnight. It requires people being intermixed. And the reason that I say that tiny homes is a really valuable tool is that we need solutions that can be implemented into the existing infrastructure that we have. Yeah. It's not like we can just start over and build new cities and, you know, and do it in a conscious way where there's space for everybody.
2: Well, tiny homes too, as, as a, a, a niche kind of building opportunity is creating communities. I, I, I saw that you went to a tiny home community in Portland where there's, you know, clusters of tiny homes. I, you know, that, that kind of grassroots, You know, activism towards like building more community with these
1: small dwellings. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it, and and that, and that leads right into your question about Operation Tiny Home. Because Operation Tiny Home is a nonprofit that I really got involved with in 2015. And the whole goal is trying to kind of highlight the value that small communities of tiny homes can bring to different populations, but we started out and focused with veterans, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, without kind of getting long-winded about it, what I believe is that the entire process, like looking at it as not just a home over your head, but a dignified space with also getting access to socialization and just a normal style of life um, is kind of like preventative medicine for mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's
2: better better than than the booze. booze.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, that was that. but you know, <laughs> was that study that everything? I
0: was telling you about, Adam. That I read. It came out of it was it was done in, in Utah, and they were looking at you know sort of the, the impacts um, like uh, on uh, morbidity, and um, you know what what had the highest impacts or or, or uh, uh, direct direct relation to increased rates of morbidity, and exercise, like what you ate, was like was like number ten on the list of ten things. How much you exercise was right behind it. You know, smoking and drinking were in the middle, right? So, with excess comes all bad things. Um, but the number one and number two, you, you know, uh, uh, I guess variables that that increase morbidity were um, uh, how many people could you say you could rely on if you were in a serious, you know, issue? Or if I had a problem, how many people could I call right now and and help get help from that problem? And the other the other uh, uh, variable was. Um, how many people do you interact with on any given day? And people with greater social, you know, kind of interactions and and sense of community, um, you know, live longer in this study. And this is like, you know, they followed people for 10 years or 15 years. Um, it was really, really fascinating. So it's interesting to hear you say, say that. Um, and it keeps, the word community keeps coming up as you're talking about this, because I have some other questions about like, you know, tiny homes as, as like vacation as a lifestyle and how do you create community for that? But really thinking more about, how to integrate tiny homes into current, you know, kind of communities is really kind of, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, it's why, why I live where I live, because we like the community. We, we have, you know, common values, you know, we all want the same things for our families more or less. Um, so how to integrate that. Um, I, I'm, I'm really curious to hear like if you've got thoughts specific about what, what does that look like? Not just inner city, but, you know, obviously suburban you know, you know, seems to be a better place to try and make something like that work.
1: Yeah. Well, you hit on some really good things, and I'll try to respond to each one. But basically that that sense of community um, and what you were talking about with people's lives and how long people live, you know, it's, it's essentially it's stress. And as such a tribal species, one, is, one of the most stressful things that can happen to a person is isolation and, and lack of community, Right. And, um, the way that we design our cities absolutely has something to do with that. Um, but I guess just in terms of what we do with veterans, that's a really big piece of it, right. Is trying to say, all right, every single one of uh, these people that we work with has some kind of trauma that they're responding for from, um, and PTSD is a huge piece of it. And when you really look in towards PTSD, you'll find that losing your kind of tribal support system in itself is a massive trauma to people, right? As, as, as people, like you just said, this, it's so important having friends, having connections, having that support. When you lose that, it's really emotionally damaging. Yeah. Um, and it can contribute to a huge amount of the, the really like far off the spectrum levels of PTSD. So simply getting people back into a comfortable space And as veterans, people that are so accustomed to kind of like that, a power in numbers, we're all here together. Yeah, Um, it's a really important thing, and I've seen it do amazing things for people. It's it's like that next step, you know. It's like sure you get them into a house, yeah, right. But then you want to make that house dignified, so you got to get the quality up so that they can at least feel good about themselves. Uh, I I want every, especially a lot of these guys are young men. Yeah, coming back from overseas, they've been surrounded by other men. Um, and if they can't go out into the world, meet the girl of their dreams or the boy of their dreams, invite them back to their house and then have some level of like pride of like, Hey, this is my space.
0: Yeah,
1: That's a really emotionally damaging thing. So I I want everybody to be at least proud of their little space. Even if it's small, it's, it's nice and it's dignified, but then we're not putting them out into a field We're we're giving them access to other contact with other people that can kind of relate and get it and understand think
2: um hey zach in addition yeah. to the community how important is mobility to tiny homes i mean like what percentage of tiny homes are built and then kind of landlocked versus you know put on yeah. trailers and, and taken to different locations
1: uh well the percentage i would say with the with the demand is probably 95 percent on trailers five percent on okay uh, on foundations that's only being said because a lot of tiny homes on foundations are just getting built in backyards as ADUs, and they call them, like, a little, my little backyard cottage. They're not saying, like, I'm building a tiny house, right? Yeah. Um, and the mobility is a massive factor, and it goes right into another thing that you were saying, which was uh, implementation, okay? So ADUs are extremely popular. It's essentially like a tiny home, only it's non-movable, so it has to be built on a fixed foundation. And what that means is that the entire burden of the upfront cost falls onto the property owner. Okay. Gotcha. gotcha. Right.
2: And they have to be built on the location which causes noise and permitting and your neighbors hate you for a week and
1: Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. But for the most part, the limitation is that, that financial burden. And what it means is that in places that have gone through with ADUs, it's extremely disappointing levels of the ADUs actually make it onto the rental market. They're being built, but they're getting built to kind of pad out the equity of somebody's property. Now you got a cool guest house, you can rent it on VRBO um, and they're not going to long term. So it's not actually affecting the affordability. Now, the flip side is having something that's allowed to be non-permanent and you could be on wheels. It can be craned in doesn't matter. But simply being non-permanent means that the upfront cost can be divided. So say, you know, say you have a property, you know, and you're like millions of other Americans in the country where you're kind of treading water financially. Right. You got this property. You know, you don't want to move, but you don't have the amount of, you know, yeah, you can't completely entire. Uh, you can basically say yes to someone like myself and my wife, who could afford to buy a tiny home. We get that dignity of like owning our space, and we can simply rent out your backyard. Yeah. And then the cost of connecting the utilities is, you know, maybe ten grand. Yeah. And you can start making an income without having this massive upfront cost, and then it also provides an opportunity for someone like me to start feeling like I have some ownership of something.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah, That's really smart. I mean, think about too, like, you know, how, how much we've proffered from the sharing economy and really how much space yeah. you have in your backyard that goes unaccounted for. It's not being used. It's not being shared. Um, that's really smart.
1: Well, and we have such an incentive to look at ways to increase the density within our cities and do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the harmony of what we love about the neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you had mentioned, uh, Adam, the construction issue mm-hmm. of building an ADU. And heck, yeah. Look at that other advantage of mobility. If I can build something in an off-site controlled environment, I can build it more efficiently right. to higher quality standards with less construction waste and give you a product at lower cost. Yep. And that means, in addition instead of t- like me and my buddies showing up to your neighborhood and dominating the space for two months and pissing off your neighbors, we're going to roll in with a crane and in one day drop it into place. Then you got like two other days of hooking up the utilities and yeah. there's just, it's just so much less,
0: um, less, on less port, of port of bodies. bodies. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: But you gotta shoot us straight here. Cause you know, we had, uh, we had, Chip weighed on a couple of weeks ago. Chip's a great friend of ours and of the, of the firm and uh, he was on HGTV. And uh. and so we, we know a little bit about how these, uh, these shows go with regards to the budget and how things actually get built. So break it down for us, right? I mean, is it really as affordable as the show would lead me to believe that I could have this tiny house for, you know, 25, $30,000 or how does it really fit with regards to construction materials, labor, like, what really is the true cost of, of, a, of a small, you know, tiny house?
1: Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. You know, our show, I don't know much about reality TV, but I know that our show is pretty <laughs> like the workload is super real. I'm like going late nights all the time. I mean, we're on deadlines, um, but there are, you know, two things that are commonly not exactly being upfront about. Uh, and number one is is the time frame, because we always have the time frame, but we always blame it on something else besides <laughs> the fact that it's just like this is what has to happen in order for like it to be profitable, you know, to do the <laughs> yeah,
2: job. yeah.
0: We'll, we'll get into the eighty percent mark as long as the camera doesn't see what isn't finished. We're we're happy, right?
1: Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> well, we actually try really hard not to not to do that, not to make it just camera ready, um, and. <laughs> You know, what I will say is that in the very beginning, the producers of the show really had no real idea of how much it was costing us to build the homes. You know, like things were just not getting kept track of. They knew how much they were charging the homeowner, and they would take that number and put it on television. And our cost was always way above that, right? (laughs) And you're getting, you know, you're getting donated material and stuff that's not even being Uh counted. Um, and so the one big disservice I think we did of the industry in the very beginning was our show started quoting numbers that were very unrealistic. Uh And then other people online were also doing homes for unrealistic budgets. And it just, it, it meant that when people started really getting into it and then going down to the point of like, Hey, maybe I want to get, they got kind of like slapped in the face with reality, um, was that necessary in the beginning? Like the producers probably thought it was to like give people the fantasy maybe. Um, but I, I've never felt like that was a contributing thing to the movement.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Zach, how can our listeners find out more about the movement? How can they learn more about tiny homes?
1: Well, uh, if they're on social media, there's an, um, there's an amazing array of kind of people that are, that are out there. There's the, uh, uh, tiny home industry association. We have a Facebook page that is very updated that is really trying to be like a news source about kind of what is happening out there in the whole landscape of, of tiny homes and housing. Um, there's the American tiny house association. Uh, and both of those two are kind of like the, the main representatives of people that are trying to support the movement. Um, a good way to be a supporter is to go and be a member of them and it costs like $25 a year, that money goes into helping really, I mean, pay for the conversations to be, you know, we have in the United Tiny Home Association, uh, we have, uh, or the industry Association, our president has been really in every single meeting that had real, that were real change and progress happened, like our president was there articulating it, and just to be able to pay for him to like, actually make those appearances. Um, is really, really powerful because he is just a, I mean, he's a rock star in this, Um, you know, and then just the other thing that people can do is just be aware of what's happening. And what I mean by that, there's this really amazing uh, trend that's happening in Los Angeles has kind of started it where they made tiny homes in the backyards legal to be used as ADUs, just like what we're talking about Providing this really powerful tool that is accessible to the people that need it most. It's not a, it's not a tool that just enables developers to like make more affordable housing and keep lining their pockets. It's like, it's something that is legitimately a tool that human beings or like people average people can have access to. Um, and that's an important distinction. So. San Jose, which is, I think, top 10, one of the largest cities, and I think the most expensive city in our country. And my hometown. Oh, home. uh, the so, San Jose. Right? Well, yeah. they, they just became the second major city in the country to adopt it, right? Wow. Now yeah, the yeah. same process. Denver is considering it. Um, this is this is a policy that can really it it can enable affordable housing to be created by individuals without using federal funding. It's something that uh, Ben Carson and conservatives are all about because it's, it's a classic um, deregulation of the private sector and enabling us to provide solutions. And then, yeah, in terms of libertarians, it's like it's about allowing property owners like self-determination to how to use their property to facilitate their home. It's self-determination to say, hey, I want to live in something on wheels. I'm an American. I should be able to do that. right? And and then as far as kind of the liberal-minded people out there, I mean, we got to change around our our society to a less impactful energy consumptive, consumptive way to live. Um, and we need to look for tools for that. Um, this is about affordable housing. Yeah, it's about Raining in our energy use, um, and and the you know kind of the liberal base is 100 percent for it too. So, it's a remarkable thing that we can make an impact with just a, a swipe of the pen.
2: Well, and Zach, it's not how often you find that you are definitely helping the the cause and making an impact. First and foremost, congrats on six years of Tiny House Nation and, and the upcoming season, which when production opens up. I'm sure you'll be on the road again soon um congratulations on all you guys are doing with you know operation tiny house or tiny home and, and helping the veterans uh and then you know keep keep doing what you're doing with with the and fighting the good fight uh and lastly but but most important thanks for being on the show today absolutely i yeah, uh, really you. appreciate your time and That's if well, you want to I really re-
1: appreciate being here um yeah yeah, and, and
2: if you, I was going to say, if you want to learn more about um, tiny homes, again, you said the Tiny Home uh, Industry Association Facebook page. That's where to go. Uh,
1: that's that's a great resource, um, uh, American Tiny Home Association. But also, just looking up uh, tiny home groups in your own area is the best way to get information about what's allowed and what's not allowed who's building what, what's available right in your area, just look up, okay, I'm in, I'm in Bellingham, there's a Bellingham or a Washington Tiny House Facebook group, go up, join it, um, yeah. And uh, awesome. and thanks again. And awesome. if you want a great tool, you can go to ZachRabbit.com yes. and check out the cool tool in hard and woodworking. Yes. yes. And, and you can uh, build your you can own tiny home. With his- manufacturing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Zach, thank you again for being on the show and uh, I think Josh and I are gonna move into a tiny home soon.